Hi, I'm Graham Trigg. I head up the client services team here at Hempson's. Welcome to this first in what we hope will be a series of Hempson's podcasts focusing initially on legal challenges and implications of the coronavirus outbreak, but then hopefully venturing in and out into some more business as usual topics. In this first podcast, we have Stephen Evans, a partner in our Harrogate office. Stephen's an expert in healthcare and mental health law. We're going to be talking about the changes in the law brought about by the Emergency Coronavirus Act, which received the Royal Assent last week. It attempts to prepare the way for the health and care system to cope with about what's about to be thrown at it as the crisis deepens. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Uh, fine. Thank you, Graham. And uh, it's good to be talking. Um, can I start off uh, by uh, saying I hope that um, everyone listening to this is well and uh, to thank everybody in the NHS in particular for everything that they have been and will be doing. Absolutely. I hope that um, Thursday evening at eight o'clock was uh, a raucous uh, affair around your neck of the woods. It certainly was around here. Lots of pots and pans bashing and things like that. It was a fantastically heartwarming moment, I think. Yes, I think it just shows the the great affection that everybody has for the NHS. And um, I think that is likely to have an impact on the, the, the matters we're going to be discussing, which are uh, uh, very troubling and, and sombre, um, but I think there's going to be a lot of goodwill, um, and uh, let's hope it continues after all this is over. Indeed, indeed, absolutely. So, um, probably one of the biggest good news elements of the week, let's start with the good news, because let's face it, there hasn't been much. The biggest good news elements of the week has been the amazing numbers of people who've volunteered to help with the NHS and help the NHS deal with this. We've, got, we've seen well over 400,000 people at the last count volunteer. I mean, this is going to be a massive boost, but also presumably an, an unprecedented organisational challenge. Now, does this legislation attempt to deal at all with these extra people helping the NHS? It, it does, Graham. Um, it uh, does a, a couple of things which are uh, relevant. One is to um, allow for an increase in the workforce, um, both professionally and um, volunteers, uh, and also it uh, seeks to give some reassurance uh, to organizations by providing uh, an extra indemnity uh, against uh, claims that might arise because of what the, the new members of the workforce uh, do or don't, don't do if that isn't already covered by um, insurance uh, or indemnity uh, carried by the various organizations already. So, the, the, the good news is uh, health professionals, social care professionals, uh, there's lots of provisions brought in to allow them to uh, be re-registered um, quickly. And I know that's happening in large numbers, but you, you specifically referred to the volunteers and there's various provisions that are um, in place to uh, uh, encourage uh, emergency volunteering. Uh, including provisions for people taking leave uh, from their jobs to protect their jobs and to provide monetary compensation uh, for people who are um, perhaps not earning uh, because they are volunteering. So that that's to en encourage uh, those volunteers, uh, which isn't to say that um, that's why any of them have done it. Uh, I suspect most of them don't realise that those provisions are actually in place. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, as we said at the beginning, it is good news. It's again another uh, outpouring of, of affection and, and the belief that people really want to help and, and work together on this. Um, 
I think it presents some challenges for organizations in actually absorbing and utilizing that enormous number of people. And I suspect that not everybody will uh, be offered something to do straight away. Uh, that makes sense anyway, because uh, of course, with uh, volunteering, there's increased interaction and, and therefore some increased risk that, that uh, the volunteers themselves will um, uh, be infected and, and have to self-isolate. So you'll need some uh, element of uh, rolling uh, availability, if, uh, so to speak, of volunteers. Uh, but it also presents challenges in terms of induction and training. And there will have to be some induction and training. Um, there's nothing I've seen that removes from organizations a responsibility uh, for people uh, it's hard to say working for them uh, because they're not actually going to be employees, but people that come onto their premises, people that are carrying out tasks on behalf of an organization, uh, they, they'll need some training, particularly, I think, about what not to do. I think it's important that it's made very clear what their role is uh, and that they should not get involved in other things difficult as that may be the natural tendency if you see somebody something happening might be to go over and get involved but if you've not been trained in the use of equipment or what risks might be even something as simple as or we may think of as simple as manual handling um, it, it's important that they they don't try and interfere um, even on a very helpful basis uh, and, and then injure themselves or others Presumably, uh, the, go on. Uh, the, the indemnity, as I understand it, will be covering um, clinical negligence claims that might arise out of the actions of um, people who aren't otherwise covered uh, by uh, an organization's indemn existing indemnities or insurance. Um, it's not going to cover other forms of legal liability. Uh, okay. So, I mean, that that is presumably working on the basis that not every one of these clinical interactions is going to be optimal. Life humans will be what they will be and there will be mistakes made, unfortunately, but inevitably in, in this process. Yes, um, I, I think that, I mean, it's, it's, it's not difficult, for example, to see that somebody might be hurt when a volunteer is trying to help them into or out of a vehicle because the yeah. volunteer's job is to drive them home. Now, that might well be covered by, it's not treatment um, for uh, coronavirus uh, disease, but it might well be covered by the indemnity uh, because uh, that uh, deals with uh, caring for uh, people um, mm -hmm who have who have, uh, have or suspected of having um, the disease but where it's somebody who is being transported for example to a routine um, appointment insofar as they're able to continue for some other condition it's not clear to me that the the new indemnity will will cover that uh -huh. and for those healthcare professionals who already have some kind of indemnity in place how how is how is that going to work? Are there different dimensions for them? 
again, the, the, the new indemnity will, will pick up anything that isn't already covered. So if, you, if you're covered by existing arrangements um, for NHS uh, organisations, that will uh, frequently be through uh, the National uh, Health Service uh, resolution schemes. Um, for individuals, they may be covered by their medical defence organisation if they're not uh, acting under the umbrella of uh, uh, of, of an employer, um, but it is as it, it would be um, worthwhile, if possible, just checking. I'm sure, like many other insurers, all of uh, those uh, uh, defence organisations are getting many, many calls, um, and they've probably uh, issued guidance about this. I'm afraid I haven't had a chance to catch up on. Uh, what that might be but it's worth looking to see if they've got any uh, frequently asked questions on their website and so on about what the situation is okay that's very helpful thanks right so let's let's look at some of the the, the practicalities uh, in, in this legislation uh, you in the conversations that we've had leading up to recording this podcast you, you've mentioned detention as being one of the most important areas so are there powers in this act to actually detain people on the basis of their coronavirus state uh, status how, how that well that's quite uh, actually quite wide-ranging um powers given to certain people um it's it's fairly complicated um and I think the main thing to appreciate is whether you are one of these people or you're not one of these people. So basically constables, immigration officers uh, and public health officers, which in includes um, uh, recognised uh, public health consultants, uh, have been given powers. So constables and immigration officers, as you might imagine, are sort of at, uh, at the front end, have slightly more limited powers. Um, once people have been um, uh, come to the attention of, of, if you like, the health services, then uh, the public health officers have broader, uh, wider ranging um, powers. But, but essentially, um, a it will be it is possible for a person to be directed uh, to uh, how it's put in the act, uh, go to a place suitable for screening and assessment. Uh, now, I'm sure that will include all hospitals, but it's likely to include um, these uh, new, uh, um, I say, hospitals that are, are being set up. It could include other places. Uh, but the idea is it's a place suitable for screening and assessment. Um, or they can be directed to remain there if they're already there, but uh, perhaps indicating that they're wanting to leave uh, before, before they have been screened. Mm -hmm. um, so that power to direct them to go to or remain in a place in, includes a power to remove them there. Uh, in other words, take them yeah. uh, if, if they uh, decline to go. And broadly, um, there's initial detention period, uh, which in most cases was, is going to be 24 hours, and that can be extended up to 48 hours. And that's for the purpose of carrying out screening and assessment. Mm -hmm. While that's going on, the individual can be required to provide samples and information. Um, and then if they test positive for coronavirus or the test is inconclusive, then they can be um, further restricted um, from movement or they can be isolated for a period in total of up to um, uh, 28 days 
to ensure that uh, they they've now uh, recovered. So it's it's quite comprehensive and powers that I think if we thought about it a couple of months ago, uh, we never would have imagined uh, would would be in existence. But um, uh, the the point, the whole point, is to ensure that anyone that we think might be infected can be uh, tested, uh, can be um, isolated, um, and if they won't do it themselves uh, on advice, uh, then uh, it it can be done to them. And this is presumably being collected, picked up by the police and or ambulance service, and as you say, delivered to uh, a facility such as Nightingale. Yeah, the, 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 the Act doesn't say how people are to be removed, um, and I think that that will depend upon uh, all the actual circumstances. Um, they might get themselves to the place if they're cooperating. They might be taken. Uh, if they're resisting, then how they are taken is going to vary. But I can see that the police uh, may well um, seek uh transport from uh, ambulance service uh, and um, that's something that uh, the police and ambulance services probably need to talk about if they're not already. Yeah, as you say, it's just a, an amazing and completely unforeseeable change in our liberties and protection of freedom, isn't it? But it, it, it makes sense in the context of what we're facing. It it does, I think. It, uh, and I think at this point, um, it's it's worth noting that that under the Coronavirus Act, um, I, I'm not going to talk too much about uh, what's already in force and what isn't already in force because we don't know when people will be listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it's really important to note that some provisions of the act uh, came into force when uh, last week um, when it became an act uh, including uh, uh, as it happens these um, uh, detention provisions for screening and assessment because there was already a direction by the secretary of state that um, uh, uh, about the uh, coronavirus crisis um, but uh, other provisions didn't come into force immediately. And there are broad powers uh, on uh, ministers of state uh, to be able to um, activate provisions of the act, to then suspend provisions of the act, and then to reactivate them. Okay. And those powers also um, cover doing that for different areas. So elements of the act may be activated in one area but not another so it's really really important uh, that anybody that that thinks they need to carry out some action under the act um, are aware of whether that particular provision is currently uh, in force um, now there'll be a lot of information online um, but um, if in doubt, you need to find out whether the act is in force or that part of the act is in force before you uh, seek to use it. Many of these 
provisions make such big changes yeah. um, that if they're not in force, um, doing something using these provisions when it doesn't actually apply will in fact either be it will be unlawful and presumably the courts are continuing to operate in and around all of this new uh, area of law that's developing the, the courts are going to have to find a way presumably to continue to function um, well the, the courts are and of course some of these provisions are, may well give rise um, uh, to court cases um, it's about the goodwill that we mentioned I'm sure there's going to be some occasions where people uh, take exception to decisions that are being made and one way or another there's, there's going to be some sort of, of court proceedings um, the criminal courts as I understand it it's not my area are doing their best to um, carry on um, other courts are generally um, very much reducing um, activity, trying to keep things going uh, as much as they can through video links or um, telephone uh, conferences. Uh, but uh, an awful lot of court activity um, is being effectively suspended. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll come back and talk about one or two uh, particularly relevant uh, courts. Um, anything that needs to be done there will be provision for being able to do it, yeah. um, but uh, but to a large extent, like the rest of the country, the courts um, have uh, slowed down. Yeah, sure. So just going back to detention, then uh, one area where perhaps we are more used to seeing people's liberty um, being dependent on their their health status is obviously mental health uh, and mental health law and also sort of mental capacity issues in the more wider sense. Uh, are there any uh, issues envisaged in, in the Coronavirus Act here? Yeah, yes, Graeme, there, there certainly are. Um, and again, uh, predominantly in relation to the Mental Health Act, but again, sort of aimed at recognising there may be um, restrictions on availability of the workforce. Um, so, obviously, um, the coronavirus doesn't doesn't um, affect the um, the health, uh, mental or physical, uh, of of people. Um, the other health issues that people have. Mm. Um, so, what what happens in relation to the the Mental Health Act is that normally. Um, for uh, detention under the Act for any length of time, um, an application needs to be made uh, based on two medical recommendations. So one of the big changes is that only one medical recommendation will be needed rather okay. than two. Um, that medical recommendation will have to be made by what's called a Section 12 approved doctor. That's, that's a, a, a doctor recognised as, as having particular um, interest and, and experience um, in uh, uh, the diagnosis and treatment of mental disorder um, under Section 12 of the Mental Health Act. Um, but uh, so, so that, that requirement still stands, that doctor will have to be a Section 12 doctor. The thing that, um, apart from not needing a second recommendation, which is um, 
dropped, if you like, is that the doctor won't necessarily need to have any prior knowledge of um, the individual that they're assessing, okay. um, which is something that normally ought to happen. Yeah. So while there, there is already a provision in the Act for a relatively short-term detention of individuals on the basis of only one me medical recommendation if it's if it's urgent, and that's Section 4 of the Act, that, that's being effectively suspended when these provisions are in force. So, uh, and I should say that if um, there can be two medical recommendations, then there, there should be. Uh, the Act is yeah. saying it it should only be one if it's impractical to have two and the recommending doctor has to say that it's impractical um, that, that there is another. Um, some other provisions which are being changed a little bit relevant to um, NHS hospitals uh, of all types. Um, Section 5.2 is a power for a doctor to detain an inpatient um, where they think that um, uh, an individual may have a mental disorder and needs assessment and normally that detention can last for up to 72 hours so two things have changed there one is it, it was normally the uh, doctor in charge of the treatment or a nominated deputy that could uh, exercise that power now it will be any doctor uh, and the individual can be detained for up to 120 hours so i think that's envisaging again possible delays in getting the relevant people um, available to carry out the actual assessment. Um, all hospitals should talk, all acute hospitals should talk to their liaison psychiatry colleagues uh, and, and probably to local authorities who provide the social workers, the, the what are called the approved mental health professionals who are usually social workers um, who actually make the application. Uh, there is another provision where the time limit's been extended um, that generally won't be relevant to acute hospitals uh, and that is a nurse's holding power under section 54 uh -huh. um, where individuals were normally detained for up to uh, six hours and now can be detained for up to 12 hours but as far as i am aware that provision has not been generally extended to any nurse so it's still only uh, nurses who are on the register of mental health nurses or learning disability nurses that can exercise that power. Okay. And for general mental capacity issues, um, how, how are we looking here? Um, there haven't been a great deal of um, uh, change um, to that. Uh, the, um, or oh, really, uh, any significant changes. Um, it's still, the, the Mental Capacity Act still applies, um, medical treatment should still be applied um, to people who lack the capacity to make decisions about that treatment in line with the Mental Capacity Act um, uh, and the principles of the Act. So uh, we were talking specifically about detention, there was uh, no current guidance on the deprivation of liberty safeguards in general that's the process by which people who are deprived of their liberty um, people who lack capacity who are deprived of their liberty um, in care homes and hospitals mm -hmm. uh, can have that dep deprivation of liberty authorized um, there's nothing to say that's been suspended there's nothing uh, that i have seen to say that um, uh, timescales have been extended but i think 
the reality is this is not going to be high on the agenda um, and uh, provided everybody behaves reasonably uh, mm -hmm. indeed behaves as they should in yeah. relation to individuals uh, then i don't think there's going to be any any comeback on the deprivation of liberty safeguards it, it's worth saying that on the current case law urgent or emergency treatment in if, in an acute hospital um, is unlikely to be a deprivation of liberty uh, and uh, I think there's a strong argument that treatment for COVID-19 is going to come under that category of urgent or emergency treatment. Yeah, sure. OK, so going from one extreme to the other, then we were talking a bit about uh, deprivation uh, of liberty and, and and those those loss of liberty issues. At the other end of the scale, we've got to treat people and get them out. Yes. Um, how, 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 how does that work? I mean, safe discharge must be an absolute nightmare. Well, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I think that's been uh, thought about um, and quite how it is going to work, again, without a good deal of goodwill. Um, I'm not, it is, is less clear, but there are a range of provisions uh, relating to discharge. So, um, the 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 aim is definitely to get people who don't who are clinically well out of hospital uh, so the guidance which has been published um and and i should say graham at this point uh that uh, it's worth noting that uh, on our website we have a covid19 portal uh, which contains links to uh, various articles that we've written and to other documentation um that's uh, many of these things we're talking about are uh, accessible through that um, but uh, yet yeah, the the guidance which has been published is that if somebody is assessed as being clinically well then they should be off the ward within an hour within and an hour. if need be if need be taken to um, uh, another uh, sort of discharge area of the hospital uh, but then they should be out of the hospital uh, within a further hour. So within two hours of the decision that they're clinically fit to discharge, uh, the idea is that people should be out of the hospital. Now, clearly, in some cases, that's going to be absolutely fine. People will be going home. They'll have other people to look after them um, or they'll be able to look after themselves. There will be a number of cases where the they're not able to go straight home or they're not going to be necessarily able to look after themselves. And usually one would expect um, discharge arrangements to be in place before the individual leaves hospital. Um, various areas of the country actually already have a system of what they call intermediate care or step-down care, oh. where uh, those types of uh, patients that need some, some further, perhaps assessment or they need some further support um, and, and they need looking after until that support at home is in place um, or a care home place has been found for them. They go to they go to an intermediate care facility, uh, uh, just like uh, uh, basically they're looked after like it's a hospital, um, but it's 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 not got all um, the uh, facilities you'd find at an acute hospital. It's not doing operations and so on. Sure. Um, and um, and I think some of these um, facilities that are now being set up, 
uh, that we hear about um, uh, the, the, the new in inverted commas hospitals may well be acting as these sort of intermediate care facilities. Um, so uh, I think people will then be moved from the acute hospitals to those intermediate care facilities while further assessments um, are carried out and things are put in place for their longer term care. Uh -huh. what, what, has been, what has been done is various obligations on the NHS, particularly on CCGs, clinical commissioning groups, to um, carry out assessments and determine whether people should receive NHS funded care. Uh, th those have been um, set aside, so that doesn't need to be done at hospital um, before people are discharged, um, or indeed no particular time limit for it. Um, but uh, until uh, arrangements are set up for individuals, and until uh, uh, then, the, uh, until it's determined whether they're eligible for NHS-funded care, if that uh, seems to be relevant, um, then the NHS will continue to fund their their care. Uh, so this won't be a flood of people being discharged for uh, and coming needing local authority um, care uh, until arrangements are sorted out. It will be NHS funded. That does then leave the position of the local authorities. So local authorities are they normally have a uh, an obligation, a duty to meet assessed needs uh, of individuals. Um, that duty is um, being changed in, into a power, I, it's, it's not okay. uh, obligatory, unless um, the, the, the failing to meet the need would, would be a breach of somebody's human rights, and I can envisage quite a few arguments about that. Mm -hmm. So that's giving local authorities more flexibility as to where they, they put their resources, um, but I can see quite a few arguments about it arising, I have to say. Um, the Uh, so, so yes, that's. I think what will happen if people don't want to go along with with that sort of discharge uh, idea um, is uh, it, it isn't clear to me. I think we may end up with some challenges, some litigation about that initially until it's made clear that I, I anticipate it will be said that people can be forcibly removed, right? If if need be. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right, let's move on. We're, we're beginning to run out of time slightly. Uh, it was, I just wanted to move on to perhaps some of the more sombre aspects of what we're about to uh, have thrown upon the NHS. We said yesterday that we'll have done well if we come out of this with fewer than 20,000 deaths. I mean, that's going to put a massive strain on, on, we know it's going to put a massive strain on the NHS itself. It's going to put a massive strain on the coroner's system, isn't it? Yeah, and there's a provision anticipated that provision made for dealing with death certification and um, bodies and uh, with um, coroners. So um, death certification, um, normally um, the rules on that are being relaxed so that um, death doesn't have to be certified by a doctor who was uh, attending the individual in their last illness. So any doctor will be able to sign the death certificate if they feel that they are able to do so. Um, the chief coroner has confirmed that COVID-19 is uh, a valid um, 
uh, form of death um, uh, for the purposes of the death certificate. Um, the, there are also some relaxation of rules around certif certification for um, uh, burial and cremation and so forth. Um, there is, uh, they haven't changed the rules on the cases that need to be reported to the coroner. Um, so in itself, although it's a, a, a now a notifiable disease, that in itself is, is not uh, a reason to report a case to a coroner. Um, however, coroners are entitled to investigate any death to see whether it is, it is a death that they are required to further investigate. So the local coroner might ask to be made aware of any death relating to COVID-19. Um, you need to check with, people need to check with their local coroner what, what the coroner wants. Um, uh, they, might, they might do that. Um, it would of course mean a big increase potentially in their workload. So they may not have the resources to look at every death just to see what happened. Um, so uh, check with your local coroner is, is the message there. Um, if coroners do have to have um, inquests into uh, COVID-19 related deaths, the change that's been made there um, is that although it's a notifiable um, disease, the inquest will not have to be held with a jury. Um, so that, that's their big change. How quickly they will be able to investigate these deaths given that the, uh, they'll be very reliant on information from healthcare professionals who themselves will be uh, extremely busy looking after other patients uh, remains to be seen. Um, in terms of bodies, a lot of powers have been given to um, uh, local authorities and also, if need be, at a national level, um, to direct people to, to take other steps in relation to bodies. So um, uh, directions could be given to funeral directors, um, directions could be given to crematoria, um, and uh, uh, in the final analysis, um, local authorities have been given the power to ensure that people are buried or cremated um, in order that um, you know, it, we, we don't end up with morgues full of people while everyone else is, is saying, uh, while the families are saying, I don't want the funeral yet. Yeah. Um, it's, so, it's, it's, that is the, you know, the, the, the practical end of this, these arrangements it, it, are. It, it is. Almost it unpalatable, is. aren't they? But it is going to have to be. It has to be well. done. Um, if we have that many deaths, then uh, things are going to have to um, happen. Um, so I, I, it, it's emphasised throughout that as uh, you know, as much compassion, as much uh, uh, acceptance of the wishes of the individual or the family um, as possible um, should be given. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, local authorities do have the power to direct that things happen. Yeah. Um, that I think moves us sort of onto the issue of, of treatment, continuing treatment and stopping treatment. Yeah. Um, and the issue here is going to be around, uh, as we know, um, you know, everyone calling out for ventilators and, and so on. And it won't be just ventilators. It will be, it will be staffing as well, but the, you know the the availability of critical care um, 
it's likely to be a limited resource. So um, NICE have issued guidance uh, about who should receive um, critical care based on a frailty score. It's recently been amended to recognise that some people with long-term chronic conditions might score high on a frailty score and, and therefore on the face of it might not um, be first in line for critical care. But outside that long-term chronic condition that they've got, they may well be very stable, they may well be very well. Um, so it was, for example, pointed out that you know people in a wheelchair would automatically uh, score high on a frailty score. Right. So mm -hmm. the latest guidance is that those factors have to be taken into account. Um, and I've also um, seen uh, guidance as well, uh, specifically about um, people with autism and learning disabilities um, who may have comorbidities, but also may not respond well um, and may have difficulty in understanding what's being said about, about their care, um, may not respond well to a sudden change in circumstances uh, and being extremely careful and sensitive uh, when assessing uh, people with those conditions. So there's, there's, there are difficulties in mm. deciding who's going to get treatment if it isn't available for everybody. What is absolutely critical, I would say, is having really robust early planning and discussion. Don't put off a discussion about prospects and, um, uh, and the downside uh, because you want to try and sound optimistic. Mm -hmm. It's You've got to have a really open, frank um, and pragmatic discussion right at the beginning based on a clear plan with clear treatment goals for the critical care. Because once somebody has been started on, on critical care, intensive care, uh, the next question is going to be, when do we stop? Yeah. Um, and the answer, initially at least, is going to be, well, we stop if goals aren't being achieved. So having those goals clearly set out at the very start, um, you know, what, what level of improvement needs to be seen in what timescale um, is really important so that people are prepared, ready, even, you know, they may not like it, but it's more likely that they're going to accept it if they already know uh, what those goals are and what the timescales are. What I think might, we might see, uh, I'm not a clinician, but I think we might see that as the number of cases increase and the demand for critical care increases, then the, the, the goals may become tighter. Yeah. Uh, the level of improvement um, we need to see uh, uh, and the timescale within which we need to see that might become tighter. Um, so those are very difficult conversations. Um, one thought I had, it may already be in place, in, uh, but one thought I had is that they're not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy for clinicians who have other jobs to do. So some sort of senior team mm -hmm. of people, maybe clinical and non-clinical, who can have those conversations um, and and help with um, getting that message across uh, might be uh, a way forward. Although the emotional um, impact on, on that team yeah. of, of individuals would be huge. Indeed. Um, I presume record keeping here is going to be 
crucial. Well, as I was going to say, as a, as a lawyer, I, of course, have to say that good record keeping is essential. Um, but if we get, uh, for example, if somebody challenges a decision to withdraw treatment or not to provide uh, treatment in the first place, um, that that that's the sort of challenge that could could well end up going to court. Some are likely, we're going to likely to uh, end up with some of those uh, cases going to court. Um, uh, before the attitude of the courts becomes very clear, and of course every case is 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 different anyway. Mm. Um, so that's where again robust early planning, good record keeping. It demonstrates what the plan is. It demonstrates who's had input into that plan, um, and it demonstrates whether um, the individual is in fact um, meeting um, that those treatment goals. And that's why uh, rigorous uh, recording um, record keeping at every step is important. And we can then get that message across and show why uh, the decisions have been made in the way that they have. So if there is dispute, if anyone does argue about it, then it's really important to seek advice at, a, at an early stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some, some, some messages remain the same regardless of how extraordinary the circumstances, I think, at the end of the day. Absolutely, yes. Stephen, that has been incredibly interesting and I hope incredibly useful for everybody who, who um, we hope will be listening to this podcast. Uh, we're just coming up to around about the uh, the 50 minute mark so I think that's probably uh, around our optimal uh, time. Thank you very, very much for your time, Stephen. Uh, this will be the first of a series of podcasts, as I said earlier on. We're hoping that the next one will be Stephen Hooper, who's in a session in our London office. Uh, Stephen's going to be covering some of the regulatory issues for uh, uh, medics and for dentists. So that will uh, come on stream sometime towards the end of next week. But for now, as Stephen uh, referred to earlier on, if you need any help and guidance, our COVID-19 portal is available from the homepage of our website. If you need to contact Hempsons at all, all the contact details for all of our offices, all of our lawyers are there on the website. Stephen's particular contact details, his email address is s.evans at hempsons.co.uk. Uh, phone number 01423724010. So please do get in touch with us. If you have any queries, if we can help at all, uh, we would be delighted to. Thank you very much, everybody and we'll uh, hopefully you'll hear from us again soon.